Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. So we're here today with Ken Yoakum. Ken is the department chair and associate professor uh, of the Department of Landscape Architecture at the University of Washington. He's been an adjunct appointment in the Department of Urban Design and Planning and is a core faculty uh, for the PhD in the Built Environments Program in the Interdisciplinary PhD Program in Urban Design and Planning within the College of Built Environments. He primarily teaches seminar and studio courses in theory, ecology and urban design, and he's researching the nexus of where nature and society relations work with us through the contemporary context of urban ecological restoration practices. So we're talking in just in some level in a more sophisticated way about uh, a number of things here, and we wanted to take a moment to welcome you, Ken. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Alan. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here and the invitation. Uh, I admire your podcast. Thank you. Uh, Bill, you had a good week so far. How's it going for you? Excellent. No, it's uh, here we are already in the springtime, uh, record-breaking temperatures in the Pacific Northwest. <sighs> Gotta love it. You know, no rain. What the heck's that all about? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. We, ju- we should stock up on cactus now for the decades ahead. <laughs> so... We have, I've mentioned it before, but we've changed at our nursery. We've changed the material that's available uh, over the last few years because of climate change. And it's been striking. I think the, I was reading a statistic uh, uh, a while back that said that uh, lowland conifer forests in the, the Pacific Northwest are, are in such danger now over the next 10 years, we might just see the, a complete declination of uh, Douglas fir and Western red cedar. We're not even specifying Western hemlock anymore. Uh, Hinoki cypress, um, the spruces, uh, large, yeah, birches are, you know, I haven't, I haven't specified a birch in the last three years, you know, so yeah. it's a, a significant change in the the usage and availability of materials from the wholesalers, which is going to, uh, you know, peanut butter over uh, all of the environmental work that's being done commercially and privately as well. Um Ken, your work, uh, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of irons in the fire, it sounds like. Tell, tell us what you're working on right now. Well, I've got a variety of uh, projects going on and kind of have wrapped up a few as well. Um, I'm an educator first and foremost, and so um, I do a lot of teaching, uh, spend time in studio with students um, to teach them not only the techniques of, of design and the tools of design, but also to help advance their kind of creative thinking and critical thinking and inquiry um, into those approaches. So I spent a lot of time doing that. I also spent a lot of time um, uh, running a department and the a chair of a department. Uh, you know, most people don't really know what that is, but it's a um, it's the executive lead of a department. And when you're in a small department like I'm in, it means you are the executive lead for all aspects of the department from from finance and advancement and marketing and budgeting and curriculum. And it obviously is an educational side of things. Um, all of those components um, kind of flow through me. Um, and I do have a great team to help support. But Is it different than uh, when you perhaps naively entered into it where you, you, you may have thought that uh, you were going to be deeply immersed in research and uh, design and that type of thing and you're you're are not not to say this is the case but are you becoming more of a pragmatic business individual that's focused on administrative tasks now than you would have hoped to be <laughs> you know it's interesting i can't you know you you come into the university as a faculty member without i didn't have the administrative role when i came in and so i definitely had that opportunity of, of really trying to figure out how to strike a balance and push forward research um design work uh as well as um as well as the teaching and then since the chair, yeah, it's much more of a pragmatic kind of day-to-day where you're at, you're asked to vision the future, 
um, and make plans for the future, but you're also really trying to figure out and develop some solutions in the near term. And have you tell tell us a, a little bit about your 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 journey to to it? Did you you, you your field of study, uh, where you where you were, how how you got into it, and that type of thing? Yeah, sure. So I I long time ago now I pursued a degree in wildlife ecology from Eastern Washington University, um, out by Spokane and Cheney, Washington. Um, and really enjoyed that and and had a, a, a good but relatively short career in, in wildlife ecology, bouncing around from kind of one research project to the next. I lived out of a truck. It was in every, you know, three-month positions. Um, and that was really formative and, 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 a, and a terrific experience. And in the in-between times when I couldn't find wildlife ecology jobs, I worked landscape construction. Um, and I was looking for ways in which I could bring those two worlds together because I really appreciated them. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, both. And I found ecological restoration and started to move forward in those directions and through ecological restoration, um, found landscape architecture. And then um, I happened to be at a, a book talk in Portland, lived there for a while. They, um, with one of the professors that were here at the, was here from the University of Washington was uh, giving a book talk. Uh, and I went and spoke with them afterwards and they kind of encouraged me to apply. And lo and behold, some 20 odd years later, I'm still here. There was a gap in the middle that I <laughs> that I went off in different directions. But I worked in um, when I first came to Seattle. I worked in for the Seattle Public Utilities when they had their urban streams restoration program, really going full bore around the um, around the turn of the century, uh, and got to see all aspects from uh, early stage research um, to design and planning to construction implementation, and then developing kind of monitoring and management programs afterwards. So you worked for briefly for uh, botanical designs here in Seattle. Is that correct? Was that with Scott Barron over there? It was. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I worked with Scott um, when I first came to Seattle again, kind of as part of the I was the lead for the outdoor construction team, mm -hmm. outdoor installation, I guess I should mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I've, I've had lots of I've had lots of hats. I um I used to tell people, and I guess I still could. I, it's been a long time since I was 27. But when I was 27, I realized that I had 27 different jobs in my life. Um, and so, um, you know, that that's definitely slowed down at this point. But uh, right. It, right. Like, I would stay at a job for as long as I got to know it and then would look for something else to move on. So so shifting gears, tell, tell, tell us something unusual about yourself that most people don't know. Ah, professionally, personally. And, and at, at any angle. Hobbies, hobbies or uh, interests or reading material or uh, an odd background fact? Uh huh. Well, it's on, on, the, on the top of my mind because this weekend I was really in, engaged with this is, um, uh, and this is a bit of a religious connotation and it, it's, it's not necessarily going in that direction. Um, but my wife and I decided uh, relatively early on in our family that uh, we would raise our, our children within. Um, kind of Buddhist faith. Um, and so we've become part of a Shin Buddhist temple here in the, in Seattle. Um, and I, I bring that up because um, one of the interesting aspects of it, and I think we'll get around to this later on, is that they recently had an arson uh, in, the, in the temple. Um, and significant portions of the temple burned down. And it was a, um, a, a person uh, under mental distress who broke into the building um, lit a fire to keep warm and and essentially set the archives mm. on fire. Oh my gosh! Um, and uh, it's really you know a terrible tragedy. Uh, I think in terms of the information, nobody was hurt, thankfully. Um, but as they were reporting out about that, they um, some of the temple members uh, talked about how the individual was seeking refuge mm. um, at church. And I thought that kind of empathy and that approach. To really understanding, yes, this, this this tragedy has occurred with deeply within our own community, but at the same time, obviously, the person that that initiated that tragedy was going through things, um, and that mindset has helped to really frame the conversation. And the conversations this weekend that I had was really about not necessarily looking about the bad things that have, that that happened from that, or or um, but really uh, to look forward and to see what kind of opportunities does this offer us. That's true, and I think a lot of a lot of we've had this as kind of an offhand topic uh, on past episodes where we've talked about how adversity can shape you in ways that 
benefited you more so than had the tragedy not happened. And so um, maybe there's some empathy to be found and a learning experience about that. I'm struck by the fact that if you are uh, centered in uh, Buddhist faith, then you you would also uh, uh, perhaps uh, think about spending, I don't know, what was it like 40 years under sitting under a tree to contemplate life? Is that, you know, you, you, that, that could be in your future? I, I don't know. I don't know if, if that, I'm not aligned with the faith, um, but there are certain things that I really appreciate about it uh, in terms of, you know, talks about the Buddha, talks about the teachings of the Buddha. But one of the primary characteristics um, is really what they call the Sangha, which is the um, which is the community. Mm. Um, I have found in my family has has really, you know, embraced the community and become part of it. And it's it's a really good, strong, resilient community that. Um, that yeah again has just a lot of potential and uh, a lot of good things and so those are the things that i try and bring forward that's that. great that's great you to know hear. to jump in real quickly on that too i have to say that you know coming from the organic end of things and that's kind of you know our community we actually focus a lot around community because community is what is it really all about and i think that's the big issue that we're facing today is that we're kind of missing this larger larger community uh, and if your archives got burned, you got to practice impermanence too, right? You got to say, oh, well, it's it, nothing's here forever. So, but uh, yeah. how does that, uh, so I'm wondering though, how how does this inform uh, your teachings around the school and, and what you're trying to um, uh, um, embrace for the educational aspects and, and what you're trying to, to you know, send off to, send off the students with? Yeah, I, I mean, I think topics one thing, but I, th I think... It... I'll just I'll just talk about my teaching style and my approach to teaching, which is uh, really leading with empathy, um, and then really leading with kind of community engagement at, at the forefront um, as a part of that. And that community is the is the cohort of students that I happen to be teaching at that time. Um, we, you know, I often approach uh, teaching, uh, especially design education, through what I call supportive critique, which is to to push individuals. Um, to really critically examine their work and their in their thinking and 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 identify new strategies so that they can prove improve upon it and so that there's not necessarily a marker or there's there's never competition between the groups but really to try and um, think about ways that they can really push the boundaries and in, in our case of of landscape architecture um, as a discipline and as a profession and as a as a way of acting. Push the boundaries. What, uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on pushing these boundaries? What are you referring to? Um, yeah, I think the, so uh, as a professional, we have two professional degree programs, an undergraduate and a graduate professional degree, and they're accredited by the Landscape Architecture Accreditation Board. And that accreditation board sets, sets the standard um, for our educational practices of the things that, that we need to engage with or address through our curriculum. And they're everything from, you know, technical aspects of, of grading and drainage to uh, technologies to craft um, all the way up to kind of larger scale thinking and climate change has just been brought into that into that set of accreditations as well. And I think um, for us, what that does is it sets the foundation of our curriculum and our educational um, approach. Uh, but then pushing those boundaries is how do we move on from beyond that? How do we really start to think about landscape architecture as in this interdiscipline, this facilitator of other disciplines and the and convener of knowledge in different ways uh, so that we can start to think about not only the impacts of the profession, but the opportunities or not only the impacts of the discipline um, upon the world, but what are the opportunities in which the discipline can work with other disciplines and other knowledge groups uh, to really start to think about how do we engage with some of the big scale issues that we have today? You know, I've I've uh, uh, thought a lot about this, and I don't know if you listened to the um, episode that I put together on uh, design education, which leans in on uh, uh, residential design build and more of the community college programs, but also had some commentary around uh, landscape architecture. Did Did you listen to that one? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's somewhat critical. You know, I have been involved. I'm a graduate of the University of Florida program. Have a lot of respect at a certain level for for the work that's being done there. Um, but I've also practiced in California. 
uh, and now here, and I've had I've touched into the programs a, a little bit, and also the community college programs at Lake Washington and Edmonds and South Seattle in landscape design, mm -hmm. and um, I, I feel like it's it's an almost impossible task. You know, when we interview. Uh, for designers at our level, it's almost like looking for a unicorn person because we want someone who is uh, creative and that has the CAD skills and um, and construction knowledge. Uh, we also want them to have a, a good bit of plant knowledge at our at our level, um, and then they need to be presentable and able to meet people in this case, you know, which they may not generally need to do at a, in a commercial sense in a, in a larger office. Um, it's almost impossible to find that person, you know, and then, and then in our case, uh, finding someone who can actually sell a project and actually market it. I'm always struck by the fact that I heard once that um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, who's of course known for his amazingly creative work, uh, spent 90% of his time chasing people for invoice payments that were late, you know, yeah. and that aspect of the work is of course really not touched upon as far as I know. Uh, and many, if, if 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 in any of the programs programs at all, but but the uh, kind of a circuitous way to ask you what what do you what do you feel like with students that you've seen over the last number of years has has it changed from years ago, and are you seeing a different outlook with with young people coming into these programs and uh, a, a change in attention or ability or desire? or um you know uh, what they're hoping to get out of the degree has that changed and if yeah. i could add to that not not just young people but also are you seeing a, a change in the in the uh, age yeah. group of people right. going through the system um a change in the age group not necessarily we have the majority of our students are probably between 20 and 28 but we um, always have students in the program that are looking for a change of career um, down the road and, you know, always, always welcome uh, those students uh, as well. And um, in some aspects, our educational model is a little bit more challenging for those um, that have had another career and have a, a fair amount of life experience uh, within that. Uh, but why do you say that, though? Why, why is that? Because of the length of it or? Uh, be, because of the length of it, um, the intensity of it. Um, it. It is an intense program that, that demands a lot of time and, um and while this isn't true for everybody in their 20s, folks in their 20s tend to have a little bit more time in their in their mm -hmm. days than mm -hmm. folks that are a little bit uh, mm -hmm. older. Um, but they're also, you know, the, those that are coming back for their second degree often are some of our strongest students are really kind of focused and intent and, and understanding and willing to kind of uh, break the boundaries of what they know. The um, But for the large group of our students, you know, have have they been changing? Absolutely. Um, you know, COVID was a huge, a huge change. And, and quite honestly, now many of our undergraduate students went through um, high school during COVID. And so we we see a lot of we'll see a lot of changes in um, kind of social abilities and, and capacities. I think educationally, they're still they're really strong. Um, but the dynamic, the social dynamics are really different, and so that ha that has changed um, quite quite a bit. Uh, students are really invested in technology, um, and technology has become a big focus of that. Um, so that has been changing the way that we approach our curriculum and the way that we teach um, necessarily to kind of accommodate those interests, um, but also to see how this this changing changing of interests um, has the potential to lead us in new directions as as a discipline and as a department. It might be simplistic to say, but I, I remember, uh, you know, in my, my my second degree was in landscape architecture and I came into it kind of as an old guy in the class because I was I was 25, you know, and, um, you know, everybody was younger and it was their first degree at, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And um, it felt to me like there were people like me. I came from a nursery industry background. So it, it's somewhat like you. You came from uh, having worked in the field and doing uh, remediation and mitigation work and stream restoration and all those kinds of things. Uh, uh, and working in, you know, environmental programs to some extent, but actually having been outside and doing things in order to determine that this is the direction that you wanted to go. There were people that came from it from, uh, I can't get into architecture school kind of orientation. And so I'm going to do this as my fallback position. And then there were people that came into it kind of naively and altruistically uh, into the field without 
any uh, background or, or, or knowledge or focus and kind of went through the program that way and came out that way, you know, uh, and, and uh, are you are you seeing that there's a diversity of uh, of uh, desire and orientation with the with the students that come in? And, and, and is it generally like that or are you seeing more than that? Um, well, we still have, you know, we still have all those folks that you just described. Um, the our, our program is really invested in um, we've kind of moved on from the term community engagement to being more about community collaborations. Um, and, and we market that type of work. And, and, and as I say that my, my intention behind saying that is, uh, community engagement has also been often been the expert coming into the room to kind of get community insight into a direction, either supportive or push back against the direction that the expert has provided where community collaborate collaboration in the way that we've been, we've been uh, really moving it forward is, um, the, uh, having the community lead. And so truly working as facilitators of conversation without going in uh, with real specific intentions about outcomes, but really embracing that, um, uh, embracing the process for that. And so that has been a foundation core of our program. And what that, that's opened up to us, um, especially in the graduate program, I would say, is it's attracted a lot of individuals um, who are really interested in activism and how can they utilize uh, an education and landscape uh, landscape architecture uh, to be greater activists in their communities, and whether that has a relationship to landscape architecture or whether it goes in different directions. Um, and so you're saying that's a new, that's kind of a new orientation that's evolved over the last few years for a variety of reasons. I would assume COVID was informing thinking about that, but also uh, climate change, of course. Uh, political polarization, that type of thing. Is that are, are those the drivers, or is there some other driver in there that's 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 moving it in that direction? I, I would say th those are major drivers, but also social inequity and and kind of social unrest, and um, you know, following from the murder of George Floyd in 2020 um, has has uh, really kind of sparked a lot of. Uh, interest and investment and engagement by by students to really kind of look at the the structure of the society that they live in, whether they you know are able to recognize their own privileges or and but also recognize their own struggles and really um, try try to work to um, engage or address some of those concerns. It was interesting. When I, uh, I have th I have three grown children, and uh, my middle one is a designer, uh, industrial designer. And um, uh, she was visiting uh, during the pandemic, and we went down to see the chop down in uh, 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 Capitol Hill area. And it was a fascinating uh, uh, moment in time, you know, because it was this complete, not complete, but there was a, a, a general breakdown in social norms and the law and the enforcement of codes. Um, and this very kind of naively small and uh, peacefully, generally, uh, magical attempt to form kind of an urban communal structure in the middle of the city. Um, uh, it was fascinating. And I, and, I, and I thought to myself at the time, I thought, you know, I, I would love to see a group of landscape architectural students down here just to soak this in for whatever they get out of it, because it's a moment in time that you're never going to see again, likely, you know, no. was, there, was there any activity around that? <laughs> they were there. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we essentially uh, shut down the department during those periods um, just because students were invested in, in in other in other parts of their lives that were were truly important to them. Yeah, and, uh, shocking. And, and so everything went virtual. And was that uh, I'm sure that posed a lot of problems. But did you because uh, you, you were still teaching, I assume. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and did that also inform the department about methodology for teaching forward of that point that that has changed things? Uh, yeah, I, I would I would say so. Uh, definitely. I mean, the the focus around community collaboration um, had been building for a long time, but it really became more solidified at that uh, during mm -hmm. those moments. Mm -hmm. um, yes, teaching online, you know, transformed everything that we were doing trying to teach design online is, is is not an easy thing to do we found that it can be done um but it's not an easy thing to do and things get lost along the way yeah. uh, going back to chop though just as an example i don't know if you saw in the newspaper 
um, Seattle Parks recently took what was remaining of CHOP they, uh, was the um, was the garden, uh, and they recently took that out. Um, and one of the professors here is leading a studio right now with a group of students, mixed undergraduate and graduate students in a studio, um, Jeff Howe, um, is really looking at that garden. What was the meaning of that garden within um, uh, for that community as it as it continued to evolve after um, after chop um, and and really kind of exploring from a design lens different opportunities um, not only to reflect on the matter but also to and to in some instances memorialize it but in most instances really to think about how, how do you move forward from these and how how can design play a role in helping to support that. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I was in some dialogue with the head of the Black Star Farmers out there, mm -hmm. and he was somewhat spearheading that that effort to the extent there was someone who was. Um, and uh, I think when it started to take on a life of its own to become kind of a urban uh, uh, effort um, and, and governmental intervention around building it new, which I think is necessary. Um, it took on a necessary uh, kind of bureaucratic tone that I think disenfranchised them a little bit, but, but I think that's kind of a, the process that it, that kind of thing would have to undertake, but it's going to be really interesting to see what's made um, out there because I, I, there were a lot of public charrettes about it and um, mm -hmm. uh, zoom call invitational discussions uh, that were, you know, uh, attended by a lot of folks. Tell me back to the garden at CHOP. I'm, I'm wondering, have, have any conclusions been drawn about uh, how that played a role in in, uh, in the community? Um, I don't know if conclusions so much have, have been drawn from it. I, th I think um, some of the re reflections upon it and the lines upon it are really about how you know, strong community investment in an idea can actually can actually impact Im impact change. Um, and while that was a temporary change, um, as as they've kind of taken away the garden at this point, um, I I do think, and a lot of our students have brought this forward, is that instances like that do have the opportunity to get a larger group of people to start considering other alternatives to the way things were done before. So, mm -hmm. It's an, it was an incredible moment in time. Hopefully mm -hmm. we won't have to undergo it again for the same reason. Um, but let's take a break, uh, everybody, and we'll be back uh, in a sh few moments with Ken Yoakum. Uh, we're here with uh, Ken Yoakum. Ken, uh, I wanted to break into a bit uh, more of a section around uh, academics and how how you approach it and how um, how you are molding the evolving student of landscape architecture. Uh, you know, it, th there are some obvious things, but what would you characterize as the 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 uh, new challenges that landscape architectural students are having to face and 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 resolve that that students of the past perhaps didn't give as much attention to? Oh my, there's so many of them from kind of individual lives to, you know, huge social issues to, you know, all the way up to climate change and beyond. The um, individual lives, some of the, some of the things we've really um, begun to focus on here in our educational component of it is um, there's a traditional understanding, when I say traditional understanding over the past 25 years of my engagement within within design education, I, I, I can reference that, um, is that when you joined design school, design school was the dominant aspect of your world and your life. You, you, you focused almost all of your time. It was not only your job, but you, you worked on it much more than the 40 hours a week you would work in a typical job. Um, and while in some instances that's, that's still the case, one of the shifts that we've had to make in education is really under, understanding that um, school for many of our students in this generation are um, is a part of their lives, but it's not necessarily the driving force of what they're doing. They've got a lot of things going on, um, and whether it's you know supporting community members or supporting family or working in other jobs as it goes along, and so we've really tried to from from this kind of individual perspective, think about how we can develop a curriculum and a supportive approach um, to their to their education while allowing them to also um, do the other things that are necessary in their lives. 
that's on a really individual uh, scale. I think um, some of the larger issues that, that students are facing, and you kind of touched on this before, is that landscape architecture design education ranges a huge amount of topics. And so a successful education has students knowing and understanding the intricacies of, of kind of material combinations to emerging in new technologies, to big societal problems, to, to designs that uh, engage with uh, concepts associated with climate change. All of those different components um, need to be figured out through a curriculum that, that can help to bring those together, but also show them as distinct and, and different. Can um, you think of, uh, are there two, are there, are there areas in that or other realms that you feel that the, your program falls short or needs improvement in, or that you'd like to embrace or innovations and tools that you don't have that you, you, you wish you did and, or, the, or programs across the country that are innovating in ways that you have not yet that you'd like to approach? Um, I think, honestly, I think we're doing a really good job. This, uh, you, many people often think of education as a relatively static or curricula is really relatively static, but it's constantly, it's constantly changing. Um, especially in, our, in, our, in landscape architecture, that's very applied as, and as the profession changes and as the world changes, our, our, the teaching of our applications need to change as well. Um, I think one of the things that we struggle with constantly is being able to keep up with uh, the rapid evolution of technology. Mm -hmm. um, AI is, is the most recent, uh, but even the plethora of different programs that were emerging, that were being taken on by different disciplines. I think of Revit, for example, of yeah. moving CAD into uh, moving from CAD into Revit and you know, and, and all of the other add-ons and extensions that went with that. Now imagine um, you probably have students bringing the stuff to you to say, look at what I'm doing. And you're thinking, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, this absolutely. Is something we're going to adapt. It's one of the reasons why I'm in, in academia where I, uh, you know, have, have the privilege to be. Um, and I constantly have students of like, Hey, look at this. This is, this, this is the first time I've ever read this. And it might be the first instance of whatever they're talking about. Mm -hmm. that's really been brought forward of new ideas and, mm -hmm. and so that curiosity, I think, is huge and, and really uh, interesting and supportive of of the larger community. Uh, but in terms of you know like needing needing to adapt or or where we uh, may be falling short, I think some of the um, real applied aspects of the discipline uh, we struggle with a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned the business end of uh, of of um, kind of of the profession. Um, is a challenging thing to is challenging to teach within the curriculum that we have the opportunity to do. Um, yeah, and yet it becomes an important uh, facet of you know consideration when someone graduates is you know are they going to hang their own shingle? Are they going to work for another firm? What direction are they going to go? I don't know. Maybe these things are covered. I do think that you know from a national standpoint, the uh, design build work that Daniel Winterbottom's been doing at your end uh, is 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 recognized as. Uh, you know the the uh, among the best, if not the best, in academia around around design build, which I'm close to, but um, but uh, I have to say that in my own education, formal education around it, it was it was it was really a shortcoming uh, to be uh, to not have as much hands on, or to come from the nursery business and be given such a short shrift around um, uh, knowledge of plant material that I thought was really. Um, uh, uh, insubstantial compared to what you really needed to know uh, upon graduation. But, you know, that's just my axe to go. Both, I mean, again, we're constantly changing our um, our curriculum, and I can speak to both of those areas. Daniel has been doing a fantastic job educating students around the really practical elements of the translation between design and building. And so we have uh, each year he the capstone for our undergraduate program is uh, Daniel works with a community group, um, and the students design a um, design a project for that community group, um, and then um, and go through all the processes of of, of sourcing and purchasing um, the materials, uh, and then understand what are the necessary changes that occur on the ground from the paper or from the models that they were developing as they're actually putting it in the ground. That's mm -hmm. been a fantastic component to it. And Daniel actually teaches summer study abroads all over the world um, doing a very similar thing. 
We also started a program recently, uh, which might be the first in the nation, um, but it's a landscape architecture course in, in furniture design. Um, mm. It's taught by a furniture local furniture designer here in Seattle. His name's Steve Withycombe. Um, and one of the things I really appreciate about it is that the students um, are sourcing materials from the university's uh, kind of yard, uh, material yard. Uh, for, and a lot of that is from trees that are cut down on campus. And so students go to the yard, they identify the tree and the wood that they're, they're going to be using, um, and then they do research on that tree. When was it planted? Where was it located? How, it's, how does it move from a tree ultimately into the piece of furniture that they're going to create? And so really trying to think about this kind of more holistic approach to uh, thinking about the materials that they're using uh, as part of them. And then from yeah. an ID perspective, um, I've been working with uh, Katie Vincent, um, who who teaches our plant ID courses, and she's a fantastic educator and horticulturist um, out of North Bend. Uh, and she's um, and we're working on advancing the curriculum now to really instead of more traditional plant ID taxonomic uh, plant ID, our plant ID is really focused on um, plant communities. And so students learn the plants of a particular community, whether it's a you know a, a wetland plant community or a upland forest or whatever it might be. They learn the plants uh, within those within those groups, um, not focused on ornamentals uh, really at all. Um, and then extending that out, um, the next class the next class that they will be taking actually the next year will be the first time we're offering it is this uh, people plant associations or relations um, course that over time from, from indigenous indigenous um, periods uh, to today, what are the people's relationships to plants and how are plants utilized in everyday life? That's another class that we're teaching. And then the final class that we really teach is more of an advanced course in, um, in planting design. So how do they take all of that previous knowledge and start to think about applying that um, on three different scaled sites, everything from a residential um, to a more urban planting to a ecological restoration, stream restoration. Type. You know, when I look at, uh, and you know, my, my, when I was coming up, you know, we were studying uh, Dan Kiley and uh, Halperin and, you know, Martha Schwartz and people like that. And, you know, and I have to say that as much as I admire and, and respect those folks, there's an element of some of their work that is, it appears to be somebody was drawing it on a plan, you know, and on, at a drafting table. And it has an element of like the picture itself is the outcome as opposed to the actual uh, environment that was being created. And, um, and you see some of that. And I do, I, I do think there is somewhat of a place for that when we're, we're talking about urban design in a commercial setting where uh, the, the, the layout of the, the, the environment is to be seen from above uh, you know, from, from, from many floors above. Um, but it felt to me like the, 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 the curricula and the, and the, and the practices to, to a large extent were, uh, were, were leaning in on that and the ornamental aspect of what was being done and the artistic sensibility of the presentation and the look of the plan was really the, uh, a lot of what the outcome, uh, of the effort was going to be. Um, we're going to be interviewing uh, three senior associates from field operations here in the next few weeks, um, and, uh, and and I think the the uh, landscape architecture firms that have learned from uh, Piet Odolf's work and and the looser, unstructured, weedier, um, uh, seasonal and and winter uh, winter interested. Um, uh, plant palettes there um, feels to me like that is changing things and that uh, in, in landscape architecture and that now we're starting to see more and more of this kind of natural flowing uh, uh, visual presentation that turns into a, a job that has more uh, to do with nature than with art. Um, yeah, I think that that period that you referenced um, earlier was was actually really important for landscape landscape architecture um, as a discipline to be able to kind of um, work through what was important. But the outcome was definitely what you were saying. It was very aesthetic focused and it was very static. It was as if these projects were coming forward and they would never change and they were actually best viewed on paper than in real life 
um, especially if you went to it five years after it had been designed. Um, yeah, yeah, and let me interject there. Is that is that something that is part of the curricula as well? Because we do see still uh, pretty sophisticated works of landscape architecture going in the ground and then visiting them two and three years later, and it's just reverting to, you know, what what it originally intended to be. And we've got blackberry and uh, sedges coming out, and uh, you know, and buttercup and everything else. Of course, that's a I'm sure peony is a weed in China somewhere, but but these are undesirable uh, outcomes for for these uh, these uh, beautiful outdoor areas that are made. So, I mean, what 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 is that a topic? Uh, much of a topic? Oh my goodness, this is what I talk about almost every day. <laughs> um, in terms of, um, I our approach, my approach in particular, is really about um, the 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 process of the work is more important than the outcome. And, and then the outcomes are always multiple outcomes that, that can emerge from that. And so really pushing forward, um, monitoring maintenance and stewardship as components of that. And uh, trying to work through design uh, as a way of setting the stage for new things to happen and expecting that change to occur. Um, and, but through experience, also be able to learn what kind of what kind of changes do you anticipate occurring, and how can you put in um, or establish protocols um, to to keep a project moving in in the right direction? I think one of the challenges, um, whether you're a landscape, you know, whether you're a landscape designer, landscape architect, doesn't really matter, is that you know within with the end of the contract, you move on to something else. Yeah really trying to think it through and understand how these um, how these landscapes are living and, and they're going to change over time. And so how do, how do we as de as designers and, and as professionals really start to um, think about what is the care behind these places and what, what is the maintenance that goes with that and what is the stewardship um, to bring that forward? It's a, you know it's a, it's a, the natural process is that the work is handed to a contractor uh, that is bidding a project commercially or or privately, residentially, and um, and at some point there may be or may not be, may there should be some kind of maintenance consideration. But those, each time, you it passes through one of those filters. It's it's like a game of telephone. You know, you're you're losing the messages, is is getting further and further lost, um, and it's a shame. Um, but we see it all the time. I drive the Mercer corridor, you know, here in Seattle, and uh, and it was I think. Uh, pretty nicely done uh, at inception, but it's just, you know, devolved into this horrible weedy mess now. And it's the, you know, it's the main thoroughfare coming into the city. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure some planner put a lot of thought into it, you know, but it's all for not, frankly, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges with that and working in public projects where, you know, there's a, there's a required three-year maintenance plan and, and, and plant, uh, quite honestly, I call it a plant replacement plan which is as one plant dies, you have to replace it with another. So it's oftentimes a one-to-one -one re replacement. Um, and, but the way that that is set up and the resources that are put in to maintain that are you know, um, much more geared towards kind of keeping in the way, keeping the way that it was at the end of the design instead of evolving as the site's evolving. Um, and then after that three years, there, there's typically no plan in place. Uh, to really think about how these spaces are going to be managed. I mean, I think actually Seattle Parks has got a huge, uh, you know, huge amount of work on their hands all, at all times. I think they're actually doing a much better job of really starting to think through, you know, you know, the the these projects went in went into place and how do we begin to how do we begin to manage them as they evolve through time? I work yeah. a lot with Arboretum and and some of the work that's being done in the Arboretum and obviously there's a big focus of of maintenance within the arboretum um but some of the work they're doing is absolutely fantastic and just it really is and you know you take it for granted because it's nature and it's beautiful in its own right i mean the success of that kind of effort in part is predicated on uh looking at it and feeling like nothing ever nothing was done and nature's beautiful in its own right but really it's quite a lot of work mm -hmm. uh, that goes behind it i think we take it for granted you know, because we live, you know, in this kind of in the Emerald City. But I think you go to other parts of the country and you can see how uh, that kind of thing can just get denigrated and and uh, and diminished without the uh, proper focus. And certainly a lot of uh, uh, improvements can be made and, and, and effort can be changed. But um, but, yeah, we do. I think we do kind of take it for granted in a public sense. Um, well, I have to say, I'm kind of struck by this whole conversation because 
who is really responsible for the maintenance long term? Because you can't, how do you take a 20 something year old student and say, you need to envision what this is going to look like 10 years from now. They haven't lived in an environment for 10 years to even know what he's supposed to look like. So then you leave it up what to the, to the parks department. Well, who in the parks department? I mean, they almost have to have a regimen towards having somebody in there that's actually uh, geared towards having this thing evolve. But well, how do you do have, you know, they've got, they've you got, got the landscape own... architect write it? Well, how do you have that? Well, they, well, they've, the... they've got a mature landscape architecture group within the parks department also. Um, well, um, we're so... talking about, yeah, yeah, we're talking about one group and I'm sure that they have that there, but look at all the organizations out there that ask for landscape architecture to be done for their properties yeah. and that, and that they just don't have the long-term vision. So it's left up to the maintenance company that's running through there with their mowers and blowers and the hedge trimmers. And they're trying to keep it looking like it was when it was installed on day one, you know? Sometimes. And I think that's honestly one of the big challenges of our profession right now is, is to, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to change the kind of financing model of these projects in in any in any way. Um, but how how are we able to to really understand uh, and accept the change within these landscapes and and help to support that through maintenance activities? Um, and that's it's a major gap with what we have. Um, and a lot of times, what you what you end up seeing is ten years later, you know, a, a, a new landscape plan being developed and a new whole set of materials being brought in or, or, or uh, used in different ways. And so, yeah, things being ripped out, things being yeah. taken that were put in the original plan. You but know, do, you, right. do, you, do you recognize, Ken, that there is shifting gears a little bit uh, on that? And, and this is this is somewhat of a parallel. But do you recognize and is there a place in the program to have an open discussion about the fact that there is a significant rift between uh, landscape architecture in the design community and the landscape contracting and installation community. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you if you look at uh, you look at landscape architects, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but if you you look at young landscape architects coming out with a sense of climate change and uh, ecological concern and uh, perhaps uh, uh, leaning in on you know a, a a facet of natural process horticulture, but then you go into the landscape contracting community, and while that kind of ethos also exists there. It's a minor. It's quite a minority viewpoint compared to you know the amount of uh, uh, chemicals that are being sprayed and the the you know mow and blow and clip it tight um, kind of mentality that is pervasive. Is there is there a recognition? I mean, it's known. Is there a recognition that that rift exists and is that communicated in some way and discussed in the in the student community? I think we could do a, a a better job of it, but it but it is engaged within our community in in different ways. And you know, quite honestly, a lot of our graduates go into design, build, and landscape construction as as part of that. I think of uh, Carlos Camaro with Juxtaposed Design or Dale Nussbaum with Nussbaum. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I I do think there is a connection there. There could be a, a stronger connection uh, within that uh, as part of our. Um, as part of our, our curriculum and focus. And I, I do think that's part of kind of the business and management end of, you know, how, how does this work actually get done, which is one of the pieces that we're, we're consistently challenged. Well, with. you know, maybe it exists in other trades. I mean, maybe if you were in coding, you'd come out of your, your coding program and, uh, and you'd go into your, your, your first uh, product uh, discussion meeting and the the message would be oh watch out for the uh, the engineers in the room they're going to be uh, on your on your case and you know get ready for this but but it strikes me that a landscape architectural graduate going out into the private sector and any at any level as soon as they're in a discussion around a pragmatic actual project installation and approach to um, construction they're going to be introduced to this rift that absolutely exists in the industry. And I, I don't know that it's not unnecessary or not well-founded or, or has any merit at all. I'm just saying that it exists there. And I don't know, I don't know that students know about it or are prepared for it, but it's, it's kind of a unique, uh, a problem that hits you in the face right out of the gate. Um, yeah, I, I, I would agree. It's real. Uh, and, and having, having worked in that side of the industry and having worked in the other side of the industry and understanding that, that disconnect there is, um, you know, it, it can be intense and it can, you know, you know, change working relationships quite a bit, actually. Yeah. It seems um, like there's a, there's a, there's, there's room and, and perhaps this is naive to say, but there, there is, um, 
a need for a necessary uh, understanding. I mean, the, 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 the landscape students are, the landscape architecture students are in a room to learn. You don't necessarily have the landscape contractors in that same kind of a venue, but from a landscape architectural student viewpoint, um, a need to uh, uh, understand it and know how to kind of mentally jujitsu this thing into place uh, properly um, uh, that, that maybe they're not informed about it. I don't know. I, I wasn't in, in my yeah. world at the time. I, I would, you know, I, I definitely think there, there, there's, there's need for that in the curriculum and whether there's room for that in the curriculum is two different things. Mm -hmm. um, I will say uh, at this point, and it's, it's, it's not my institution, it's not my department necessarily, but some of the community and two-year colleges that we have in this area are absolutely fantastic in this regard mm -hmm. uh, in, in doing really strong work and helping um, and helping that aspect of the industry really kind of come forward and understand these aspects of it. At least, at least from what I've seen, as we've had many of the students that graduate from two, with two-year degrees uh, then transfer into our program later on, right. um, and then the approaches that they take to their own education is very distinct from an 18 year old that just got out of high school that has very little life experience kind of. Yeah. Thing. I think it's usually a more mature uh, individual to begin with, which, you know, can inform their thinking in, in different ways. And and I think usually then they, they, they would come from a residential background going into landscape architecture and they come out doing something different. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's more mature or just more well-informed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I like to think of myself at that way instead of, uh, instead of aging. Um, let, let, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with Ken Yoakum. Yeah, we're back with Ken Yoakum uh, and Alan Burt, and we're here for a conversation around uh, landscape architecture. So, and if I could, uh, if I could start uh, jumping in on the future, uh, I think the, uh, you know, the big elephant in the room is AI and what that means for, you know, for landscape architects and design. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated because I picked up on a number of things you said that actually sounds like it's combating what AI has the possibility of doing. One of which is that you talked about, we're focusing on a holistic approach. Uh, we're studying uh, various plant communities. Uh, we're looking at people's relationships to plants. Um, all these things seem to play into the idea that AI can't do that sort of community engagement, uh, whether it's community engagement with plants or community engagement with people. So what do you see as the future of AI in, in, uh, in landscape architecture and combating AI, really, because the students have to have, you know, have to be um, employed? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and and I might address this directly, and then and then not so much directly uh, as I move through it. Um, but I think first and foremost, understanding AI as a tool. Um, it's a tool that can that can help um, advance education. It can help with efficiencies. There's all kinds of things that it can do. But what it can't do is 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 replace our individual relationships and our individual knowledge uh, around um, around topics and opportunities uh, and approaches. Uh, and so I would say my hope for AI um, and with the profession's relationship with AI is we continue to understand it as, as a tool to advance our work. Um, I don't necessarily anticipate it being something that's going to take over our work. I think there's enough intricacies um, that are involved with the um, with the design professions and with the obviously with the construction professions as well. Um, that it's not um, it's not necessarily that's going is going to be a wholesale shift uh, in into that sector. Um, I mentioned relationships, and I think that that's an important one. Is uh, you know we take an approach that we're not as educators we're not here to train students. We're here to educate the whole students, and there there's. You know, not everybody might understand the the distinction between the between the two of them, um, but the education and the in the holistic approach to education is really to identify the whole student and help to support them in all of their breadth of learning, whether it's um, in you know areas of interest that are directly related to landscape architecture or areas of interest that are further abroad. And so, how do we support those connections in that building and that in those relationships? Um, to su support their growth um, as a, as individuals, 
I don't think AI can really kind of touch upon those things. Within the profession, it can certainly help us out with plans, help us out with documentation, help us out with permitting, um, help us out with plan ID. All, all of these different aspects of, of the work can certainly be uh, addressed with that. But I think those are those are more supportive characteristics than the, than kind of the heart of design thinking and design knowledge that comes into a lot of the. Have you seen? Have you had a problem? arise because of ai in the in the program on an individual uh, project or 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 anything like that yet you we we've had some we've had some issues with with papers being written through ai um with uh students using uh you know turning in their final work that's that's derived out of mid journey which is another ai yeah, product right <laughs> um and so but th at this point those are pretty easy to tell right yeah. now yeah Right. So, um, yeah. um, and so we've changed the approach to recognizing that how do we use AI as a tool? So, for example, in, in a class that I've, I've taught recently, um, the students were required to write a paper. And so what I did was have them, um, you know, in class, write about the topic that they were interested in, write a few sentences of those topics they were interested in. And then I had them take those sentences and, and insert them into chat GPT and ask for an outline for a paper. Um, yeah. And then. Chat GPT uh, generated that outline. They brought that into class, and then they started to write out within that outline what were the and I worked with them. What were the you know like critical components that they really needed to think about? Um, and then I um, had them uh, write write the paper, and then they also asked Chat GPT to write the paper, and they turned in both of them. Right, like so. I think there's different strategies to think about how how students can use these tools to help support their learning, but not necessarily as in replacement of their learning. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's important. That's an important point. Um, yeah. And I, you know, condolences to you because I, I do not envy you that task of sifting through those filters to figure it out. <laughs> Although right now you can tell, I suspect in another couple of years, it's going to be so seamless that it's going to be really hard to tell. Yeah, and and quite honestly, I don't, you know, I, I don't have any any globe or any magic wand or really to understand the kind of direction where things are going to go. Um, I, I assume it's only going to be more sophisticated as we've looked at technology over the past. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, all good points, and it's a really an interesting time to be to be in uh, the 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 area, the field that you're in, because everything is changing so quickly, and so many new ideas are being brought forth, and everything is so much easier, and everything is so much more complex and difficult at the same time. Um, with that in mind, how how do you envision uh, things changing now over the next few years, where where there are new uh, shifts in, in thinking or uh, new technologies are advancing. What, what are you thinking? If you're sitting in this chair, you know, and, and hopefully you will be uh, uh, five or six years from now, how, how is it going to be different? And, uh, you know, what do you look forward to or, or dread the oncoming onslaught of? Yeah, well, I, I think, again, as we've just been touching on, I think technology is going to change dramatically. Technology is going to continue to change dramatically. And, um, Again, as an educational institution, it, it is our, our our job and our mission to really think about how we can best support the education of our students to to be able to be active members in society and the in, in the world that they graduate in. Um, and so, being able to support um, support those changes in those aspects um, will be critical uh, internally. Right now, and at least for the next couple of years, I can I can see this um, this being a real emphasis and a real focus. Um, is there's a really strong push from our our students as well as our faculty to understanding the relationships to place. And this isn't a new new topic, new idea. But how do we really explore and understand our relationship to place through different through different ways of knowing whether it's um, whether it's you know Western Western epistemologies or whether it's more uh, Eastern understandings, or whether it's you know more indigenous relationships. How do we how do we begin to understand our connection to place? I think the the students are a lot of our students are really striving to understand their role in this world because there's so many pressures that they hear coming down on them, and they're shouldering that responsibility. And so, how do we how do we help to support them in, in finding finding who they are and who they want to be as as a professional? Um, and then supporting their efforts to to find ways to get there. 
Do you feel uh, in the in the in the world now where we, you know, I think sensible folks are, are recognizing the the onset of uh, dramatic climate change and the the modeling around it uh, seems to be uh, naively uh, uh, optimi optimistic, even in its pessimistic viewpoint, uh, as storms are increasing and things are happening. Um, you know, in my own little world, we were talking earlier before we started recording about how uh, our, our nursery uh, stock uh, inventory has changed and that our willingness to specify certain materials has changed dramatically. When you think about that and you think about climate change and your abilities and the students' abilities, are you are you generally optimistic about the the arc of all of this or pessimistic? Or how, how do you view how do you view uh, the ecological future to your students uh, and for yourself? Yeah. I, I see I see little point in pessimism. So I'll turn to optimism almost in, in any uh, any set of um, kind of questions. The I am optimistic. I, th I think one of the things that we've we've been learning about ourselves and that yes, there's unrest and there's turmoil and all these things going on. But there's also really strong pockets of resilience. And I, I think as 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 communities and as a larger society, I think we're going to adapt to accommodate to those those changes um, uh, as we move forward. Are they are they big changes? I think they're massive changes. I think you know in many ways society is going to reorganize itself in in, in what way um, is best for it at the time. Um, but at the uh, at the same time, I, I'm highly optimistic. One of the approaches that I often I often take um, to help think about the future of landscape architecture and our, our future practitioners um, is an, an approach that, you know, does, does a, design is um, or can be solution oriented, but we, 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 we create solutions all the time on a daily basis, on a long-term basis. How do we shift our approach to thinking about design to be more opportunity driven? And so knowing that solutions are going to be accommodated along the way or, or defined or, or made along the way, how do we really think about what are the opportunities um, that these changes and these um, uh, these issues that are arising can can provide for us? And so, again, I'll go back to, to the temple that I'm a part of and, and that earlier conversation of, you know, a really strong perturbation or a really, you know, negative aspect that happened with the, with the arson, then turned into a moment of reflection in which emerged from that a real emphasis and a direction forward um, about, you know, really, really kind of questioning what we value and what and what we want to move forward. And so I'm optimistic in that way. Do I think there's going to be challenges along the way? I think, yes, absolutely. There's going to be massive challenges. And is it going to be a clear story or a singular trajectory? Not at all. But I do think that there is a lot of opportunity within that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's great. And I, I love the fact that you uh, brought us back around to uh, the Buddha, which is, uh, you know, all the, the circular nature. Uh, thank you for that. Tell, tell us uh, what you're listening to. Uh, what's on what's on the uh, what's on the uh, Apple earbuds there when when nobody's around and you're jamming down the road? Yeah, I'm still a book reader, although I've got um uh i'm listening to eco scene politics so here here's uh, pushing a little bit but it's um by Manea Tanaseku. um and eco scene politics is really about our relationship to place and our relationship to the activities that we do to manage place um and it's it's a really strong book i'm also uh, i'm listening to indigenous continent i don't know if you've heard of indigenous continent uh but it's a rewriting of um north american history uh, from an indigenous, uh, more of an indigenous history and in indigenous perspectives. Leaning in on uh, mythology or, or or factual history. Um, a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Um, but but it is is more factual history than the mythology. Mm -hmm. the mythology mm -hmm. plays a really strong mm -hmm. role in understanding the narratives of life. Um, mm -hmm. and that's by uh, Pekka Hanalainen. I'm mm -hmm. mispronouncing that last name. Um, but that that's been a really interesting book. Um, I'm also reading a book called uh, Ecological and, and Social Healing. Um, and that's a book of, I think the subtitle is Multicultural Women's Voices. Um, mm -hmm. Really understanding people's relationship to place and within the environmental justice realm. Uh, and then I just got a book 
that I'm super excited to start, uh, which is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Um, and it's written by Mary, uh, Mary Roach, um, who also wrote the book Gold and Stiff. I don't know if you know those books. No, um, I'm really uh, kind of interested in that book. And, and it, it's, I think, a, a compilation of a lot of different kind of scenes mm -hmm. how um, uh, particularly animals behave differently than we anticipate. Mm -hmm. Now that's that's bedside reading for Ken. I mean, are we like uh, curling up with uh, Barbara Kingsolver or, or or John Grisham at night? Is that are you are you fully are you fully on uh, landscape architectural themes twenty four seven and uh, or, or is there a, a weakness for Scandinavian detective uh, movies or anything like that? Uh, I would say, I would say I typically read I typically read these these works. Mm -hmm. um, if I was to go into the fiction realm, um, I support my my son's into science fiction. He likes mm -hmm. science fiction, so I'll often read the books he's reading, mm -hmm. uh, so that we can maintain like good conversation relationship. Yeah. And and mm -hmm. I lo I love those stories and kind of the character development and in the building forward of an idea on a on a very common trope. Yeah. I mean, all the right themselves in a different setting yeah if it's um, well done if it's well done it's uh it, it can be really fascinating there's been a few good movies but i'm 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 jaded on that that whole uh genre because of the way they're executing it but but there's occasionally a really golden one that really comes out really well the um and so yeah science fiction and fantasy would be kind of the areas mm -hmm. that, I, mm -hmm. that i explore with reading outside of this um mm -hmm. not much of a tv person i never had mm -hmm. didn't have for a really, really long time, and I have a hard time mm -hmm. like getting into it now. Every once in a while. But on the on the headphone music side, it's Toscanini or Foo Fighters or what? what oh are yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of. Uh, I found myself going back to the dead a little while ago. That was right on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Time. First um, thing I did when I got my Spotify account is I loaded up 16 hours of live dead shows. <laughs> YouTube. Yeah. Um, no, it, and and it's um, from there. It's really it's really all over the place. To tell you the truth, mm -hmm. um, I do listen to a lot of. I have a thirteen-year-old daughter who likes mm -hmm. every pop song that ever came out, mm -hmm. and so uh, we listen to a lot of radio in the car. That's that's based on that those pop songs. But what, what what comes on? What comes on the radio that you know your significant other reaches over to shut off the volume and you stop and say, "No, no, we've got to hear this all the way through." What would that What would that song be? Oh yeah. Um, seven nation army i would probably say or um the uh cold play i really i've really always enjoyed cold play i mm -hmm. uh, kind of the pearl jams nirvana's mm -hmm. um that type of an that type of work or that type of music i um also spent a significant period of my time in um uh, embedded in punk music so i went from the dead into punk uh, uh -huh. Which wasn't actually as big of a jump as you would think. Not really. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. I still love, I still love the mid '90s uh, Southern California punk that came out of that period. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, good on you, Ken Yoakum. Thanks for uh, joining us and uh, and uh, educating us about the Grateful Dead and uh, Grateful Landscape Architecture students doing good work. Great. Well, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Uh, keep doing the good work in this podcast. Um, uh, I look forward to hearing this episode and the next one's coming up. Thank All you. All right. Thanks, man. You have a good day. Take care.